Okay, welcome back to the War Horse Podcast, official episode number four. I'm coming to you this evening, once again, in exile, surrounded by weapons. I've got my Walk by Faith 777 Tomahawk. The six hour two thirty, not two thirty-two. My benchmade griptilian custom with this new uh snaggletooth device that I really like. Turns it into uh gives it the Emerson wave quick opening feature. And uh, tonight the focus is going to be mountain men in general. And uh, I feel like I'm at least halfway qualified to, to speak on, on the, I guess there's a, there's not really much of a conflict other than perhaps what's in my mind and my experience having worked on ranches as a ranch hand for a number of years in a number of different environments and having worked uh, much many more years and in many more environments as a survival instructor, tracking instructor, bushcraft guy. I want to uh, later in the in this show go in depth on on some of how this historical stuff you know perhaps not so much how it's played out but um, you know when we talk about archetypes mythic archetypes and heroic archetypes and last week uh, we touched on the one of my favorites the detective Maybe that was um, kind of the the catalyst for this. I've, although I've been stewing on this for a bit. When we talk about these things, I mean, cowboys, cowboys definitely come to mind. And um, we're going to pull that apart a little bit tonight. Pardon me. However, before we do... I'm going to tell you, we're going to go over two different knife uh, knife bits. The first one, in lieu of an actual sponsorship this week, I'm going to throw the shout out to Winkler Knives. 
and um, you regular listeners thought maybe I had forgotten about my operator, but I did not. So, as a guy who grew up, um, I remember as a little kid, like in elementary school, I had a box full of knives that I traded other kids for and um, carried them in high school, even though, you know, it was frowned upon. I've carried knives professionally, non-professionally, personally, what have you, and collected them for the better part of my life. Um, And as I, I got a little older and my resources got a little bit better, and then as professional demands, I should say allowed for, uh, because I sure as hell wanted to acquire more knives, allowed for that, particularly, you know, in particular the, the times that I was doing a lot of the tracking and survival stuff, um, led me into custom knives, and I must, I mean, one of my uh, survival mentors, you know, had used to joke about the box of knives that he had buried somewhere in his garage, and he showed it to me, and he did have it, and you might have one, and I certain I've whittled mine down, probably off that guy's advice, realizing it was going to get out of hand, and then I should say as well, forgive me, I'm dealing with a little bit of a uh, a nose thing. I don't get allergies and I don't generally get sick, but I do get I do uh, get a lot of flow sometimes, and so bear with me on that. I'll power through it. So several years ago, I came across the operator probably fairly late. I had never had a Winkler before, though I've had very very you know thousand dollar knives. Um, a bunch of different custom knives of all shapes and sizes. I've designed my own knives and had them custom made. I am I've been honored with, you know, gifted a few very special knives which of course stand in their own category. And uh from what I gather, the operator was designed in in collaboration with a guy named Holland and Mr. Winkler. The short story of what I believe you have is in the operator is probably the greatest one knife that that has that's ever probably been made. I mean the size, the shape for a long time I considered, I studied it and scrutinized it and used it and tested it, and I I bought a second one, as I like to do with anything that's going to be like an essential tool, and um, studied it and had drawings made of it, made my own drawings of it, and I finally, you know, I'm thinking, well, if I could improve on this, 
maybe uh maybe there would be some value you know maybe the market uh maybe i would have a personal value but maybe the market would reward that and after several years of doing this i have concluded that this knife cannot be improved on you could you could make it fancy you know you could make it out of a fancier steel or something but i really don't believe that you would even then um an S30V or what have you. The way this thing takes an edge, the way it holds an edge, the way it feels in the hand, the way it carries its taper, its weight. I have killed many, many, many animals um, in a variety of fashion, and I do not mean I finished them off after I shot them. I mean I took them on one-on-one, and the way this thing performs is um, it's just second to none. So five solid minutes to uh, to Winkler knives. Congratulations and and Mr. Holland. Um, in all seriousness, it's It's just uh, a work of art, and uh, it goes with me every day. As our conditions and the circumstances in which we find ourselves have evolved, I have chosen to go to a two-knife everyday carry, and I've modified the Winkler-made sheath, which is excellent. Uh, leather on the inside, leather on the outside, over kydex, which is then formed, I imagine, and stitched, riveted. One of the benefits here is nearly, for all practical purposes, absolute silent draw. Were I able to get Mr. Winkler to collaborate on a limited run, 50 or 100 Golden Goat Guild slash Winkler, Winkler, we should do Winkler slash Golden Goat Guild, of course, um, collaboration. I would go with um, Brown Micarta scales, and I would hit him up on maybe an, a slight alteration to the sheath. Maybe that would be part of the, you know, the attraction of uh, a collaboration. I don't know that I can, I mean, I've, I've made plenty of sheaths. My ideas for this one, you know, what it comes with is brilliant and beautifully well-made and everything. It's very versatile. And it does work for for what I've been using it for and will probably always use it for. However, I think that the size could be reduced a bit. And I might, if possible, add... I have done this on, on mine. I've modified the sheath for a single sort of belt clip. It comes with a giant kind of um, very heavy-duty spring steel like one inch wide I've gone down to the 
maybe it's half inch with the, the strut and where it attaches I've added some plastic washer grommets um, to keep it cinched down and um, yeah I would uh, I would explore the whole the whole concept with Mr. Winkler and hell Mr. Holland as well if he's still around I bet that the two of them would come up with something much more for uh, much better than I would uh, you know given the impact or the, the input of of the end user I don't know so that is uh, our advertisement my second knife bit and uh, I think this is all appropriate you know to uh, to an episode dedicated to mountain men and cowboys I have I have both a Spyderco and um, a Griptilian as mentioned but this Griptilian has recently come back to me uh, I I gifted it to a very special fellow who uh, recently, tragically, unexpectedly uh, passed away and this knife came back to me from all the way across the country and um, like a boomerang. And one of the interesting things about this knife is that there are several interesting things. Uh, the most interesting thing I will tell you is that I, after I gifted it to this friend, um, he he loved it. He he was very appreciative. Benchmade Griptilian is a damn good knife. Um, this was S30V, I think. And I had upgraded with the factory um, Desert Tan Micarta grips. Usually it comes with some plasticky ones that are fine, but these are very thin and nice. Benchmade did it a good job. And so it was a, you know, it's an upgrade. It's a nice, nice piece as a gift. And this man took it out to out east where he lives, um, lived, and, uh, had it for several months, you know, and went fishing, hunting, all sorts of things. And one day he was out fishing and evidently dropped it into the river. And of course, I didn't hear about this till much later. But he, uh, he dropped it off the dock, so he knew roughly where it was. And he went home and rigged up a magnet and came back and spent evidently several hours trying to fish this thing out and he could not do it so he got I guess on the phone book I don't know somehow found a local diver a scuba diver paid him diver went down you know two minutes pops up with the knife and uh, that was it the knife was back with its owner and then 
as mentioned, short time later, fate took its course and this knife is back with me. And there's something about knives and men and work. I mean, it's not a huge mystery, but it's, it, you know, it's one of those, one of those um, tools or aspects of our attention that has grown upon itself. It's gone beyond even its utility, on beyond even its its legend, and now it's, you know, it's averging on, or it it. it it is. I mean, some of these are works of art. You have these super nerds who collect them and just keep them in their closets and then wait for the price to go up. And... All right. So now that we're all situated, weapons are arrayed properly, I believe. noose is deposited firmly by the way we got uh, on Twitter a mention of uh, somebody called out for a BAP Warhorse episode I, I don't know if any of you guys can track the guy down I recommended that we get together and uh, he can do the funny part and I will do the, the straight man part and we'll do a long one about mercenaries I don't know maybe he'll he'll be the straight man and I'll I'll have to do impressions or, or something but that seemed like a positive development to me so this is a large topic mountain men cowboys archetypes as mentioned I feel somewhat qualified having studied all these things and participated in, in all these things. So I'm going to start, you know, in the way of making an argument, and I'm just going to state that the mountain man, generally speaking, and on an individual basis, was robbed of his rightful place as the true hero in the American expansionist experiment mostly from the you know late 1700s let's say till i mean indians were still being fought as far as i know you know well into the 1890s uh much 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 you know reduced by then but you're talking about whatever just just for sake of argument say 100 years it appears to me that the, the legend of the cowboy that later was developed into the filmic Hollywood version of the cowboy, the gunslinging lawman, you know, uh, chasing down bad guys, Texas Ranger, the man with no name, maybe the greatest of, of all the, finally it had, you know, once again twisted into art. And uh, I have loved all that stuff. Probably my all-time favorite novel uh, is Blood Meridian, and certainly the Border Trilogy is in the top five. 
And as I've said, I have spent portions of my life participating in all these activities. So it's not, um, it's not any kind of spite or, but, uh, maybe, maybe personally, you know, in the final analysis, my, my bias is towards the mountain man. That's what I would choose to do if presented right now. Okay. You can be a cowboy or you can be a mountain man, fucking mountain man right now. Done. No questions asked. I have experienced both of these lifestyles. And I'm certain with which one I would go. So as we were saying, um, you know, once Hollywood gets its grips on these things, um, it may well have been that fiduciary considerations, you know, uh, proximity to desert shooting locations and maybe um, a lot of old horsemen roaming around in the 1930s and 40s made for for more economical choice, you know, who wants to go to Wyoming? Um, if you live in LA and you're a movie person anyway, I do, but you see where I'm going here. Go to Wyoming, be in the snow, even though it's July. So whether it was that or whether it was the dime store novels that also kind of came on the heels of what they called Blood and Thunders, which were exaggerations upon the exploits of the mountain men. And, you know, there's kind of a blurry line between the two genres. This is alluded to in probably one of the finest movies ever made, which again is, I suppose, about cowboys. Certainly about that era. I'm speaking here of... um, Unforgiven by Mr. Clint Eastwood. And this this has a lot of strange elements to it. And so maybe we'll just get into some of these guys because Kit Carson, uh, who shares my birthday, Jim Bridger, who my son is partially named after, are, to my lights, the greatest of the mountain men. There are quite a few on historical record. Um, And I mean, you know, spectacular, heroic level um, guys. So I'm not in any way dismissing Jedediah Smith, Joe Meek, Um, even the lesser, the guys who, you know, weren't particularly mountain men, but were explorers and who worked with guys like Carson, Fremont, I mean, hell, Lewis and Clark, those, you think all these guys weren't, um, pretty, pretty hard and pretty capable, then, um, you might think again. So, Kit Carson live to see, you know, he went out in like, like most, for some reason, a lot of these guys come from Missouri. There's this whole kind of band, vertical band from the, um, Appalachian area through Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, 
southern Virginia, of course, the Carolinas, that hits out all the way to Missouri. And you guys have probably heard the uh, or read the, the various studies of who populated these places, you know, the Scotch-Irish and uh, etc. So I believe that Jim Bridger and Kit Carson both came out of Missouri very early in life, you know, 17, early 20s. Kit Carson spent, I believe, 20 years out there and moved on to guiding. Um, he was made an officer in the Army after, after he, you know, basically showed them how to do their job enough times that they finally just said, hey, let's just give this guy a, a commission, which they did. Similar, I don't, I don't know exactly if Bridger was ever commissioned, but he might as well have been. From Honestly, from what I read, Bridger, um, Bridger was the bigger badass even of the two. Both of these guys shared in all the reports, they had certain personality traits that seemed to be shared. They were both quiet, um, humble. Neither one was, I think they even said, yeah, Kit Carson was somewhat slight, you know, um, not a huge hulking man, either one of them. Six foot, 160. Maybe one, maybe up to 180. They both had some quality about them, which is alluded to in all of these historical accounts. And then, of course, the secondary and tertiary literature repeats this stuff and reinterprets it. If I can manage to steer this on course, you know, this is this is the main concern of the War Horse podcast. What is the interiority? What can we glean from it? And in this case, what can I do to get it? Um, just to be blunt with it. These are the questions that concern us here tonight. So back to uh, Carson real quick. I mean, he went out in his 20s, spent, you know, 20 odd years out there went on to various other exploits, a lot of Indian fighting, a lot of scouting, a lot of guiding. Um, for both Bridger and Carson, you know, it cannot be overstated how, how, much, how many skirmishes, how much fighting over decades these guys were involved in. Likewise, it cannot be overstated the breadth and depth, so the variety of skills that each, and this would probably be consistent with all of the great mountain men, certainly all those that lived, and, you know, if they spent more than 10 years out there, um, you're talking about an exquisitely capable human being beyond sheer hard skill, mechanical level shit, way, way, way beyond that, which is what I'm going to drive this podcast towards to say The secret of men like this lies in the interior. And as we were alluding to a moment ago, you know, we have to approach this obliquely and do some reinterpretation, some speculation based on 
the accounts we have. Third time to try and not be detoured on this point with, with Carson. As he grew old, um, I believe he settled in Santa Fe. I have visited the, um, the little house. There's a masonry um, thread with Carson. It's alluded to in the, in the short story that's available on Patreon for subscribers. It's like a 20-page short story I wrote, uh, I don't know, eight years ago. I never published it anywhere. Never was quite certain it was complete, but I am proud of it. I think it's very good. And uh, I think that without uh, mentioning the Mason thing, nobody would have ever picked up on it. But it's there. It's very subtle. So I visited there. It's, it's uh, you know, it's not that great. It's okay. But as Carson aged, he he found himself in the very weird situation of evidently being very famous and not you know if you became very famous today you know you how would you not understand it one you probably you probably sold your soul for it and so you know exactly how you got there and you know what it is and you wanted it maybe you didn't know like a lot of these movie stars will say oh i would trade it you know it's it's a burden bullshit they wouldn't trade it that's what they wanted and they got it. And if they didn't want it, they could give it up. But Carson finds himself in the odd situation of genuinely not understanding why he would be famous. You know, much of it is due to this innate humility. Much of it must be due as well to an intensity of focus that I... I have known, I, I was about to say that maybe we never see, I have met a couple of men who lived their lives way, way out on the extremity of, you know, polite society. And there's really only one, if I could, I could uh, dig through these mental files some more, but I'm pretty sure I've only met one. And I don't think that on balance, there's, there would be no way to construe that he had the level and depth and variety of skills that any of these guys had. You know, he's a modern dude. But all of these guys seem to have a, an inborn ability to focus. And we've spoken about portals a lot on this podcast, and we probably always will. And my, maybe a quick way to make the, the, the argument Go back and listen to the other stuff. I, I build it out. I build it out. I approach it from five, six, seven different angles to build a, a genuinely dimensional picture for the listener. But it may be that the easiest way to just flat out say it is that there is a level of focus available to mankind that will take you directly into a portal. And you... Maybe this is, you know, man is, is made in the image of God. Maybe when you access this portal, you go, it's not like you're on a ride. It's more like you're the driver. So I've always, after reading books about these guys or coming in from a trip, I've always wondered about the mystical 
side of what their lives must have been like. You know, the solitude um, in itself has, uh, you know, spiritual, a mystifying quality. It opens, it opens doors to awe, feelings of awe, uh, reverence, and hopefully you've had these experiences yourself. I know I have, and um, hopefully we don't have to go into a lot of detail describing quite what we mean. But to paint out the possibility that you have, what well, you have in these in these two men in particular, and probably in the top pantheon, I mentioned a few. There's historically there's maybe twenty that that get pretty good uh, treatment. I think that in these men you have something special, and I wonder if their drive wasn't just towards something silly and you know in the fucking history books. Oh, um, a wanderlust or a, a drive for freedom or a distaste for polite society. Excuse me, I need a beverage drink here. I don't think that in any way this tells the tale. Okay, so why? In Jim Bridger in particular... He's um, apprenticed, you know, <laughs> the polite term for basically enslaved as a child to, to a blacksmith. He makes his, his escape um, almost seems to gravitate, you know, towards all of this stuff. You imagine, I mean... It's well known that everybody in that part of the country could then, and a lot of them can now, you know, shoot pretty straight or ride a horse. But the entire uh, suite, the arsenal of, um, of skills, both soft and hard, that is acquired in the, like, to become sort of a journeyman level mountain man. I mean... Bridger, this is not blood and thunders. This is not exaggeration, okay? This man mapped the vast majority of Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, a good bit of Washington, Oregon, and Northern California by memory, no pen, no paper even, to a, uh, a 95% accuracy. A, de a, a degree of imprecision of five degrees. So if he tells you X Creek, some little pissant piss creek over here is, you know, 10 miles from uh, Mount Baker or what, what have you. Basically, you're going to be able to see Mount Baker. Like, he's not going to lead you, lead, lead you astray. Um, and same man... This is the same man who was an absolute master stockman, uh, horseman, hunter, extraordinaire of anything at any time under any circumstances. A master warrior. 
um, of, <laughs> of some ingenuity, you know, um, tested, who knows, thousands? Certainly, certainly hundreds and hundreds of pitched battles in genuinely, truly austere and terrifying circumstances. Uh, you're faced with the prospect, if you know, if you take an arrow in the leg of, um, I mean, cauterizing it yourself might be an option. Losing the leg is an, a definite reality. Gangrene. Uh, just living with the arrow in your, in your thigh for the rest of your life was pretty common. And that would be one arrow, you know. Oftentimes dudes were shot a few times. And this goes on for 40 years in Bridger's case. 40 years. Not 40 months, not 40 engagements, 40 years. During this time, I spoke of soft skills. This guy learned fluently 13 different Indian languages. There was, as you may know, a sign language common among all of the Plains Indians and presumably the coastal tribes, you know, had picked up on some of this stuff too. Um, very, you know, totally adept with that, of course. Um, he had built, by the time he was done, one of the high points in his life, we'll use that to kind of make this point. And the point being that part of his survival was related to his ability to interact and cooperate with who he needed to cooperate with, identify who he could not cooperate with, and take appropriate action. Again, usually under extremely austere conditions with not a hell of a lot, right? A muzzle-loading rifle. I think maybe he had a repeating rifle in the later part of his career. I'm not even sure about that. Knife, I mean, you're talking about genuine Odysseus level levels of um, ingenuity and cleverness, undeniably, like off the charts in comparison to even the most, ex you could add up the 10 most extreme examples that came out of any modern war probably. And I'm, I'm not sure they're going to, you know, there might be some very, there will be, of course, very interesting escapades and uh, interludes. But you're, we're dealing again with a 40-year career. So the point was, part of his survival was, even though he's just some country boy who's chained to the anvil for most of his young life and then escapes... I think his dad died early, you know, he left and probably sent sent money back to Ma. But um, he had some ability, just, right, like despite not going to school, despite not some, he wasn't overly social, socialized in uh, Uncle Ted's terms. Clearly not. Had no problem sitting in a one-man cabin for uh, like six solid months of snow, eating jerky and cold tallow. I mean, he didn't write. He was illiterate. He didn't read. What was he doing? 
He did have a wife, uh, a couple wives, I think, at various times. Indians. You know, I could be wrong, but I don't. My my impression was that uh, female male interaction was was not real heavy in terms of you know it's intellectual stimulation and and such back then, which is probably for the best. I don't know. But this raises a question, you know, what's on this man's interior such that he's able to one day watch the blizzard ebb, gear up, go out for two, three days at a time, come back with a full elk, strap it to the horse by himself, find off the grizzlies himself. I don't recall a lot of talk. They had dogs um, for sure, but they seemed very, you know, dispensable. So I think that for the most part, it was a one man. Sometimes it would be two men and they would split up to rendezvous a couple days later, like on the other side of the mountain or back at camp. But here you have a guy who's capable on any given day of an operation like that. Again, there's no Gore-Tex. There's no GPS. There's no 30-round magazine, night vision. There's no Glock 40 with Buffalo Bore 10 millimeter. I mean, if I don't have that and I'm in grizzly country, I'm not comfortable. And I know for a fact that I have, you know, the weight of my experience is is heavy enough. Um, And that's just the reality of it. So you have in this one man an ability to find himself at home in this in this environment. And then also make a kind of home with many, many different different cultures around him and be able to read them and parlay and do liaison negotiations between them over a long period of time. So he's accessing abstract concepts, I guess, I mean, think if we could sit down and talk to him about things like particulars and instances, universals of morality among culture and whatnot, uh, what was he able to decipher? What's the level of complexity and nuance that this man was able to put together? Some historians, some douchebags might have it that, oh, well, he was just, he just bluffed his way through it. Or, you know, he, the, the one side, the enemy side will have it that, well, he, he just made a treaty and broke it and then made another one the other day and that was how he survived. Well, if that's the case, take this instance, which is very well documented, and if we have any Mormon listeners, um, if you know about this, I'd like to know. I would really love to know if this is something that is in your in your history in your culture is it something you guys are proud of do you even know about it it was it was new to me until i read it but i'm not a mormon and i i i have lived in utah i love utah i like mormons you know it's just, i'm just curious here and I, i'll be honest i side with jim bridger so fuck it so at some point uh joseph smith you know makes his way out west salt lake area which is just south of 
kind of the main AO for a lot of the mountain men. And, you know, Fort Bridger, if you locate it on the map, is right off the Oregon Trail. Um, and that whole area just kind of southeast of uh, Yellowstone is absolutely incredible country, um, for one. So it's, it's no wonder that that would be a, a factor. But the rest of the factors are not, you know, entirely clear. I don't know if it's just greed or what, but Joseph Smith comes out there. Jim motherfucking Bridger is well established. 20, 25, maybe 30 years. I don't know. I forget exactly when. He's out there. He's a virtual living legend. And Joseph Smith decides, well, he wants that area. He wants that for his cult. And he hires one of these... One of the very, uh, you know, the reality uh, that gets twisted later by Hollywood, he hires a lawman who is little more than a mercenary. And I have no problem with mercenaries, but uh, if they are wearing a badge, then I have a problem. And uh, I think Jim Bridger did too. I think hopefully listeners of the War Horse podcast take my meaning. Joseph Smith finds some guy some sheriff with a badge who then finds a posse of 100 to 200 men who go up and proceed to burn Bridger's house to the ground, break open the corrals, set loose hundreds and hundreds of head of stock. Well, where's Jim Bridger? He's on the mountain just above his cabin, his house, watching it all. And, uh, you know, he's got his family with him. He's got his rifle trained on him. And the reason that he was up on the mountain instead of in that house when those uh, fellows came to burn him out and kill him, kill his kid, kill his wife, kill all his fucking animals, was because I believe it was the Blackfeet, one of his closer um, relations in, in terms of tribes you know he had built up an intelligence an underground intelligence network that would put anything that probably anybody in the history of the CIA has ever cobbled together one how many of them operated for 40 years how many of them did it under truly austere conditions how many of them did it face to face and how many of them spooks were virtually out in the open or pretty easy to attack at any given moment for decades on end. I would that would be a good one to bring up with Bap cuz he knows he's very well versed in that and there might be, you know, some old examples um maybe even from British intelligence history that are on par. I don't know in terms of, you know, there's various factors, intensity, proximity, um, complexity, certainly the urban and modern industrial landscapes, um, you know, they can't, they can't necessarily be read and interpreted and appreciated in the same way. So I'm not, I'm open to the possibility. But that said, Bridger's put together an intelligence network that comes out of the woodwork, you know, gets the word that this posse's en route to his house to kill him and his family 
They get over there, let him know he survives. This is the same man who later, you know, communist inversion of history would have it was, they called them butchers, they called them madmen, murderers. Carson took a lot of this stuff right on the chin. And, and Bridger did too, you know. Uh, I'm not interested tonight in getting into the moral uh, complexity of it. To me, it's not... The interesting parts are not there in this, um, in the mountain man, which may be part of why I, I love them so, and I do love them so. That's why I actually carry a tomahawk from Walk by Faith 777, available on, on Instagram every single day. Not on my person that much. But anyway, you, you get where, I, where I'm driving here. Um, these are exceptional men with exceptionally well-rounded skill sets who were put to the test over long periods of time. And, you know, to swing back kind of away from... Uh, to point out some of the advantages that they did have, right? And just in, in regard to, to bagging on the CIA, but yet not taking the context into full consideration. Untouched, unspoiled beauty beyond imagination. Eyes that never, that were never laid on any screen whatsoever. I suppose, if, you know, maybe a few of them walked, you know, saw one of those early uh, silent movies. But I mean, hell, most of the damage is done when you're a kid, right? Um, telegraph, pretty harmless. Automobiles, nah. Locomotive, steam engines, these are... These are nothing compared to the absolute, constant, endless, all-pervasive flood of mechanization that we suffer through, that we were born into, and, um, yeah, I mean, if anything, that's the driving focus of this whole podcast is let's look at the square in the face and let's find a way out of it because highfalutin ideals and, uh, you know, wait until the last minute to, to throw your life away. None of this shit is, nobody wants to do it. Obviously, that's why it's not been done. It's not going to be done. And um, sitting around and just letting letting all slip away is not an option. But so back to these guys, the advantages these fellows had. You know, their minds and their bodies. One, you know, I, I they they each seemed to have a little bit of school, but it sure it was not. You know, sixteen or so years, eight hours a day in a chair. Okay, these are the men who could walk forty miles a day. Um. Applegate, the Applegate Trail down in Southern Oregon, you know, this is one of these guys who was famous for just walking 40 miles a day. Riding, who knows, um, day after day after day after day. Circadian rhythm, perfectly timed to, to the sun. Um, 
what now in terms of diet it's interesting because it, it appears that the guys who stayed out there a while particularly them that took on Indian brides you know did become like nat, uh, master naturalists you know as well um, there's something about each of these fellows like the, the level of the curiosity gate was just nailed permanently open um, the humility gate on most of them there's a couple there's a couple exceptions that are that are pretty skilled pretty famous but a little douchey we won't go into them but uh you know the the diet in some of the accounts that i've read was damn near all meat all the time and these dudes would eat the marrow these dudes would eat the entrails all of the organs you talk about liver king um, in some sense, you know, these men are gifted with genuinely some of the best food probably to ever be eaten by, by uh, most nutritious food to ever be consumed, um, in substantial abundance. Start thinking about the buffalo, the elk, the deer, I mean, rabbits, just what, you know, meat upon meat on meat and uh, imagine the water you know in Wyoming at elevation or Montana or Idaho or Oregon no uh, glyphosate there man not even any you know smog not even from the uh, the forestry trucks that that we we might access I've accessed these places maybe you have too but uh, we're told that you know aluminum rains down from the sky and how true that is I don't know but um, the pristine you know setting that these men found themselves in must have played that in their favor, you know, I hear, here's a, probably the, many cases where the inner and the outer um, merged in a kind of harmony that pushed them over, over again, decades of time to a pretty uncertain financial future. The ideological freedom is not a good enough explanation for me. It's not even close. There's something much more powerful, much, much bigger than man-made conceptions of the political, okay? I think you get what I'm driving at. Sorry for that, uh, that noise. I am driving at a level of being with a capital B that... You know, those men, their ancestors were very likely slaves. I think that I think that probably most of them were. Um, who knows what their histories were in Europe? Well, uh, most likely they didn't have access to to the king's deer 
for as, as far back as maybe you know ancestral memory or word of mouth or whatever they had went so in another sense if you did want to make an academic kind of statement about this more than spiritual which i don't but I'll, I'll and i'm not that great at but i will take a stab at it i would suggest to you that and hopefully here we can tie the cowboy thing in and then sort of move forward with the other piece of this but the mythology of american freedom insofar as you could live it and experience it to me would have never come from yeah it'd be great at this point in life to be a landowner if somebody wants to give me 40 to a couple hundred acres in wyoming uh idaho or montana with clean flowing water and some mixed terrain i i will take it for sure but the responsibilities of that um even back then. And the level of satisfaction derived from eking it out on the land and going into trade with other guys eking it out on the land, yeah, it's it still sounds pretty damn good compared to um, waking up at 7, rolling over for your microwave fat cake, uh, rolling over from there into your shitbox car, sitting in traffic for 40 minutes, rolling into your shitbox office where you plant your fat ass, etc. You know, that's the, um, that's not you and me maybe, but it seems to be the, the driving force and it seems to be the place where the force drove, if you will. Take my meaning there. So in terms of, you know, an academic sort of summary uh what did these men actually embody? I think they might have embodied a type of uh, sovereignty that that almost no man ever... When they had no responsibilities in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the likes of which royalty would be encumbered. Um, they had a job. And, you know, if that fell apart, it wasn't like they couldn't do something else. It wasn't like they couldn't even just disappear if it all went to hell. Plenty of them did. So them, them that stayed for year after year after year, it wasn't, you know, the whores and the um, twice a year drunk from the rendezvous. I kind of doubt it was the, com the camaraderie. Uh, I kind of doubt that it was... I, I really doubt that it was some type of... Some of them got, you know, kind of sort of wealthy. But the Astors, Astoria, Oregon, you know, this this precedes the British Trading Company. The, um, what is it? The, is it the... There's the other one I always forget. Um, it's not British Columbia Trading Company. Anyway, the Astors... I'm very familiar with them and Astoria. The, you know, that um, corporate stronghold was there from, from if my if memory serves, you know, long before Jim Bridger and Kit Carson. Point being, these guys were not going to entrepreneur their way uh, into financial freedom. 
Jim Bridger did amass uh, a pretty nice stash at one point, though I think that the Mormons took a big piece of that, and then I think that maybe he mismanaged some of it. You know, he didn't die a real wealthy guy, and neither did Carson. And I don't think any of them did. And I don't think that they were really out there for that. I think that what kept them out there, what drew them out there, the explanation for these kids from Missouri and similar places taking a riverboat, signing a contract to go hunt beaver. I mean, I was going to go into some crude jokes right there, but I, I will resist. The, the sanctity of the mountain man is a serious thing for me and for the War Horse Podcast. So, you know, speaking of sanctity, the sacred, the profane, which we we have been touching on a little bit over the recent podcasts, recent episodes, this is where we can see historical examples of both a portal that was accessed Oh, many, you know, maybe every day for years, but consistently over time, such that it became a way of being as evidenced in their survival. These men are not not highly attuned to their own well-being, their own interstates, and the state of every snowflake around them. And if and if they weren't, you know, how how do I know that? They'd be dead. Spend one night in Montana in the winter and you will you will be on my side with this. You will understand that if you go out there with your head anywhere near up your ass, you're dead. It's over. That's not the case in the Willamette Valley. You could you could um you could probably get by for a week or so, you know, before something'll get you. But out there, Idaho, uh you know, the whole West in many, in different ways, different looking at it, different environments, different threats. Carson uh, spent a lot of his time in the Southwest, um, Southern Colorado, New Mexico, etc. Fought all those crazy tribes down there, the Kiowa, Apache, Comanche. And, um, in these men, if you have read Blood Meridian and you have you intuited this higher level of uh, meaning behind the book, within the lines of the book, within the dialogue between the judge, the exchanges with the kid, the kid and the priest, on and on and on. The whole book itself is, you know, as a good friend of mine has said, is borderline holy. And why is that? Um, and again, this academic kind of explanation with Blood Meridian, you'll get something like, you know, this was the last time that man could test his will against the untouched landscape. And yeah, there's definitely a, an aspect of that. Why would that be the entire story? Unless you are hell-bent on making an, you know, an evolutionary, materialist, atheist, sad, soggy, stupid, yet again type of argument. Well, there wouldn't be. That's what they are doing. 
what they're not doing is suggesting that, you know, perhaps God didn't die. Perhaps nothing that man would do if we just simply took God by definition as an all-powerful, all-knowing being would kill God. And I know that, you know, the, the fine, but I know that Nietzsche and his ilk were making a far more subtle point. I am aware of that. What you, listener, and maybe uh, off-time Nietzschean, you know, devotee, will have to corresponding, admit in a corresponding fashion is that the takeaway is still the same, that we killed God, that God was just this myth. And that we decided that wasn't necessary anymore. And technology stepped in and it all sort of blew over to the side of the road. And I know and you know that if we have an honest conversation, it appears more like Nietzsche was saying something along the lines of, uh, man, this is, we, just, we just really fucked up. And you know, he talks about blood on our hands. How, what can you do other than become a god yourself? Um, you know, that is incredibly, that's some genius level uh, poetry observation sort of stuff and you know some people have pointed out that blood or made the case that blood meridian is more hegelian um maybe so in either way in either case um the idea has persisted that you know and it's in our lore it's in american um public schooling i mean it's in the commercials to pro football games that you know the sort of plucky and uh hardy character of the american explorer is constantly reinventing the new and will not be put you know this god bless this fucking country well that's you know pathetic there's just not there's nothing else to say about it other than it's if you're eating that up that slop you kind of deserve to to be called a pig because there's no notion of the sacred there there's no identification or credit or recognition for the true hero there's no rewriting the rewrite so that the explorers, the mountain men, the guides, the couriers, the Indian fighters, um, the, the, I said scouts, the trackers, the mountain men, who could do all of that and cowboy on the side like it was nothing because it was nothing to them. All of them could pick up a job cowboying. They didn't want to because agriculture itself is inferior to the hunter, the nomadic hunter lifestyle. And while Blood Meridian does present this astonishingly badass, you know, version of a type of hunter, and I approve. I mean, <laughs> let's not lie. Um, I'm the guy sitting in his Dodge with a, with a fucking tomahawk four inches from my hand. But... I, I will be also be the first to admit that, well, let's say I'll, I'll be the first to shed a tear, okay? I'm the first to shed a tear 
that whether it's the super dramatic badass version or a, a you know a still incredible astonishing badass version where you are you know living in a cave or a lean-to shanty in uh in Shoshone country in uh you know 1840 hunting elk and uh, drinking spring water in either case you are not subject to uncle ted's substitutional activity okay you are plugged in uh mainlining the the secret truth to the universe as nick pizzolato wrote in um the first season of true detective that was a pretty solid line nick that's what that's what was going on there and i think that some of the explanation for why there's not a lot of text and verbiage surrounding these guys is the solitude the silence the monk the inherent monk like quality of this true man of god living in god's country quite literally not the um fast food version that we have what did he see what did he think what did he feel in the in the sense that castaneda has proposed and i think i've shared with you guys people are still arguing with nietzsche i'm sitting here arguing and telling him that he's that he you know could have been you could have said it a little better buddy i know that the the syphilis kicked in and what have you there was no closed case for even someone who's revered as as one of the great geniuses you know of all time he didn't close the case god closes god opens and uh I hope in my lifetime, you know, I hope in in yours, if that's what you wish for yourself, to access the um, the humility that must have been available, just like it was on tap to those guys, and of course the corresponding vitality coursing through their veins as they look out from that little shitty no window lean to cabin onto fresh powder and find the elk tracks what could possibly be better than that you know you're going to fight some indians come the summertime too and probably get laid with a few of them i'm joking but i'm not you know um the life of the mountain man we touched on it there um and i don't care to particularly maybe in the first hour trying we're already at 110 you know we'll go a little longer and, and take a break but there's no way i can i can try and make the entire case that agriculture agricultural society civilizations are inferior to that of the nomadic hunter but that's my position and um i realize the inherent hypocrisy in so far as you know i i come from the great extrapolations of agricultural civilizations and um you know if uh, you hear the jets i apologize for that 
but maybe that's an ambiance and some of the nerds on 4chan can geolocate me. Well, suffice perhaps to say that maybe the ideal would be a kind of balance, you know, if we're to, instead of trying to ham-fistedly uh, make a quick case on something as big as that, I will, I will say instead that maybe the ideal would be to have city-states uh, surrounded by pristine, untouched, truly wild country, and to let whatever orders and castes of men might arise in, in such conditions arise. Um, both the low and the high. Um, I, I don't think that Jonathan Peugeot, who you guys may not even be familiar with, I've linked him up before, but he's an iconographer made semi-famous with his association to uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, and I, I do respect uh, quite a bit. And you know, am an, uh, not quite enamored, but certainly fascinated with much of what Peugeot puts forward. And uh, I agree, you know, wholeheartedly with his stated goals behind his work, which is to like re-enchant the world to, or to, maybe he's more passive about it, you know, to let re-enchantment unfold. I agree with that project. And I think BAP agrees with you know, maybe in his sort of uh, more secular way. And that enchantment, to my mind, would include the opportunity to, um, sure, if you want to be a cowboy, you want to bunk next to 10 other dudes, you want to mount up a horse every day and then ride down dumb animals and uh, tend to them. I mean, I've, I've done it. And uh, it is superior to a lot of things in a modern society. No question about it. And uh, I'd like to talk, you know, more about ranching um, in the next hour. We definitely will. We'll be going over. Um, we'll talk more shit about the cowboy. I'm joking. Um, talk about some of the you know, struggles of the modern rancher in, in terms of the mass concentration, you know, that took place with the, the packing and slaughterhouses, as well as just um, the ranches. You know, if, if we were just, as I think was intended by the founding fathers, you know, maybe kept land holdings under some type of limit I'm not sure but but certainly allowed for the flourishing of 10 million or 10 billion I don't know maybe a hundred million different versions of ranching you know microclimate level microbiome level local grass-fed organic as opposed to the poison toxic sludge environmental disaster and I don't care what you say no I don't believe in climate change but there is absolutely an environmental disaster uh, underway 
probably several of them depending on your vantage point and but there are positive things you know there are there you know they're just beginning for the rancher um and i i respect the rancher and i'd be happy to see it would be much better if everyone ate a lot of beef and that was very accessible so that would be cool but it would also be even cooler if the buffalo roamed and they were accessible only to men who would go and hunt them in some sustainable fashion. I realize we can get into entire political arguments, and this, but it's just a fantasy. So as we used to say in the 80s, don't fuck with fantasy. Um, the mountain man uh, should be a viable job. And uh, unfortunately, cowboying... As, as kind of a shitty of a job as it is, yeah, you know, it's technically viable. Maybe maybe if um, your average rancher, you know, your guy who has a few or maybe even up to 10,000 acres out here in the West, um, if they can pool their resources and get over some of their entrenched and ingrained politics and take a few lessons from their enemy and... Uh, actually collectivize some type of uh, distribution and processing means, then, you know, they could actually be, they could be pivotal. And um, I will be supporting them in every possible way, even if that means going back and working on ranches. But I'm hoping that it means, I don't know, maybe interviewing, visiting, um, reporting on their, on their progress. So, quick glance at the notes. Um, you know, I think we hit the high points. I would encourage anybody who made it this far in this podcast to, you know, if you like to, to uh, dig your way through kind of poorly written historical books, do that. Uh, but I would definitely study study the lives of the mountain men if you are so inclined i'll close on two for the for this first hour i'm going to close on two points that i think are be of value my examples in in jim bridger and kit carson here both uh both men have you know their reputations uh, have remained for now. You can imagine a timeline where in the next 10 or 15 years they're completely erased. But despite the fact that they've remained, they were both... Uh, the reputation was sullied big time. And you had a movie a couple years back called The Revenant. And Meat Eater, Steve Ranella, you know, kind of on the same intellectual level as... Joe Rogan and Jocko and you know hey you guys are all you know more successful than me I can go ahead and imagine myself to be slightly more advanced intellectually than you um, I'm sorry how terrible that sounds it's it but you were going to interpret you were going to you know uh, assume that anyway by by what I'm going to say I think I'm I I actually do respect Steve Ranella. he's made a made a hell of a career off of basically being a hunter but um he brought you know he brought this point up with a guy who wrote a book about the revenant and uh 
The problem that I have with Ronella and this guy is Ronella does the same thing Rogan does. You know, he basically says, like, I'm going to be a little skeptical on this. And then he fucking sides with, with the guy, offering very little in the way of even a plausible theoretical counterargument. It's your fucking podcast. You can do whatever you want. It's not disrespectful. And the, the accusation, and it does piss me off, so you can sense that and I will admit it. And I'm coming to the man's defense, not because he needs it, but probably just because I'm not fit to carry Jim Bridger's water, and neither are you. Um, and the man's dead. And the point being, in the movie The Revenant, if you've seen it, there's a moment where uh, the the DiNardo cat character, you know, takes a hit. He goes down. Um, he's gotten in the he's gotten attacked by the mauled by the bear and i think that a a group of indians or something is closing in on them and the other mountain men decide to leave to to kind of watch over the dude who's been mauled and i say dude because one of the two that remains is the, the young 19 year old jim fucking Bridger whose career so far outweighs that of the hero in that story that I'm just going to leave him nameless you can figure out his name the truth of the matter is that it doesn't take a whole lot of examination to start prying this apart real quick so you have a group of dudes who are out there, presumably on some type of a whatever contract, hunting. One of them is injured gravely, probably going to die. He's just been absolutely torn to shreds by a, by a grizzly bear. Guns have gone off. Um, you know, savage Indians are en route. They're going to come to the sound of the guns. So... I guess the choice is made, well, you know, maybe maybe the bulk of us ought to run off and try and get reinforcements while you guys lay low and try and hide uh, from the Indians who, in the same sentence, will say are, are, you know, as capable of detecting you as dogs may be. I mean, they're going to find you, is the uh, insinuation. So, Bridger is told to stay along with another guy. And then, as the movie progresses, the other guy does turn out to be... I think they, they kind of actually cast them both as men of low character, you know, um, traitorous. They've abandoned their brother-in-arms. First of all, there was no camaraderie. There was no brother-in-arms, Okay. Yeah, there was probably some friendship, and that was somewhat organic, but those relationships were also inspired and bound by corporate greed. Now, does that contradict what I said earlier? Not necessarily. You could be operating, you know, for the sacred while the man is paying you know, for your coffee, 
and that's kind of the sum total of your existence. I mean, you could be working next to a guy who's hell-bent on killing a thousand beavers this year and getting rich and moving back to St. Louis. You don't know. But the whole of that discussion, which was in the Meat Eater episode, was presented as, you know, kind of the authoritative version, which it's not very authoritative if you're just... if you, I mean, you did very little... There's almost no additional information from from what is in the record. So what is in the record is that it's unknown, one, whether that is Jim Bridger or not. It does look to me like it was. What is also unknown is what information did a man who turned out he could live out there with them for 40 years such that they would risk their lives for him. I'm speaking of the Indians here. What did he know? What did he know about, even at a young age, say, intertribal warfare or some sort of seasonal... um, You know, the, the Native Americans seemed to operate very seasonally. They would take the whole winter off, even though they'd be in the middle of a giant grudge match. Other times... They were moving by the thousands to go and hunt down one dude to make, you know, a point of of some one thing or another. The guy hunted on their territory or what, or what have you. So to say that Jim Bridger did not make some type of judgment call on whether or not he wanted to stay and give his life, or even if that's what he was doing, maybe he had his information or had information that... Fuck, maybe the grizzly was going to come back. I don't know. But what I know is that I would put Jim Bridger up against the entire aggregated mass of people who wrote about him, certainly in the modern era. And everybody excepting myself, who did a podcast about him, and I would times their total personal power by 10, and I would still bet my life that Jim Bridger would outmatch every one of those motherfuckers combined. So the fact that, that Ranella did not stand up with some simple, a simple counter-argument such that I just pulled out of my ass for you really pisses me off. Similarly, Kit Carson... The guy um, slayed a lot of Indians. Yeah. His reputation went from, you know, American hero to uh, just cold-hearted butcher. Um, I believe in his lifetime. And again... um, you You could stack up all those writers... And all those talkers and all those motherfuckers. And I will choose sight unseen. I don't even care if there's a couple other mountain men in there. I will take Kit Carson over the entirety. And, you know, fuck it. Add in their family members who did maybe go on to do some, some interesting and great shit. doesn't matter. I am still siding with Jim Bridger and Kit Carson. And I side with the mountain man over the Hollywoodization of the cowboy. And 
In the second hour, I am going to offend as many people as I possibly can because I know a lot of um, Warhorse listeners, God bless you guys, are, are rural boys. Um, maybe you're even ranchers, and maybe you can correct me where I, where I uh, misstep. But in my, in my experience, what was done to the inner city say from 1920 to, you know, really to the present day, but uh, it seemed to have peaked a couple times, 70s in the Midwest, um, urban areas and 60s, and then again in the 80s out West and um, Baltimore, these sorts of places. What was done to the populations of these places is was done, I'm going to say in the past tense, to... Uh, Western ranchy culture and Southern rural culture and extend it right up through Appalachia. And I know that you guys know it's true. The same effect. There are some nasty words that I'm going to try to avoid using because I would like to remain on iTunes. I haven't even gotten on iTunes yet and I'm, I'm one, one loss of uh, control away from, from never even arriving. But um, what I'm suggesting and what I'm going to discuss in the next hour, along with some really primo uh, criminal of purpose discussion and chat and exercise, is focusing on uh, the the ongoing degradation, the ongoing um, just like endless... Uh, rehashing into ever more thin and thin and thin layers of just transparent bullshit regarding, um, you know, kind of the get her done, uh, country boy thing. Okay. I'm going to pay it a lot of due respect as well. And that's why I'm doing this is like harsh medicine is needed. And um, if you guys want to be offended or, you know, you want to have some ammunition for hate mail or, you know, you just want to hear an interesting point of view, please um, head your ass over to Patreon, uh, find five dollars and pledge it. And then you can access the second hour where, um, you know, it's probably not going to be as harsh as it, it comes genuinely from a place of love and firsthand experience. And um, I in no way, you know, consider myself um, a guy who spent his adult life entirely outdoors for the most part, you know, an urbanite or removed. I just wasn't raised with the same mythology and it's the mythology that I think I have some expertise in and um, you know we can only apply the the sort of generalized Jordan Petersonian version of things so much until we need to particularize it and um, we absolutely it's high time way 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 past time because the few guys that are out there, um, you know, J.D. Vance has done some, some fine work, pointed out, uh, you know, in, in much, much more eloquently than I will. Um, 
but hopefully I can do it faster and um, maybe just, you know, it'll be something that can touch a few folks out there or something to linger and put on your own back burner for whenever it comes in handy. I have seen what fentanyl does. I have seen what, uh, what do you even call it? Like country rap, you know, basically the drum machine added to country music. I have seen the proliferation of consumer culture wheedle its way into all of these, all of these kind of staples, you know, from, from rural country fashion where you have Brad Paisley's version of, of Wrangler jeans, um, into everything right down to trucks or whatever. So again, you know, it's a love hate thing and it's, uh, it's, it's necessary. So as I was saying, if you're interested, you can find more information at the Patreon page. It's always on Spotify. There are t-shirts available on the website, which I encourage you, um, to check out. There's also a few other items on the website that you may not be aware of. I offer um, a number of services that you can investigate tailored to you, the consumer. Feedback on those has been outstanding and uh, you know we're expanding every day. We made some big strides today even in, um, in a couple of new offerings. So there you go. Once again, in all seriousness, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you're interested in the more esoteric stuff, you know, meet me on the other side. Subscribers, I'll be right back with you.